Christian Bush, your book, The Serendipity Mindset, states that good luck isn't just chance. They can be learned and leveraged. What is one example that's especially relevant for you? What I found exciting about looking into the role of serendipity in our lives is that it happens all the time for some people and for others, it doesn't at all. And the same for companies. There's a company called Hire and Hire produces washing machines and refrigerators and other things. And, you know, they got a lot of calls from farmers and those farmers said, hey, look, our washing machines are breaking down. We're trying to wash our potatoes here, uh, but somehow it doesn't work. And so what would a company usually do? They would try to, quote unquote, educate the farmers to not watch, wash their potatoes in the washing machine. Uh, Hire did the opposite. They said, well, OK, this is unexpected that they wash their potatoes in the washing machine. But you know what? Why don't we build in a filter that allows us to filter out the dirt and call it a potato washing machine and sell it to farmers? And so that's exactly what they did. Yes, it was a lucky kind of coincidence that they came across that. And, you know, when you look at it now, it kind of got them interesting kind of uh, new products. And that happens to individuals as well. But the point is, most of us are missing those kind of unexpected things all the time because we have a certain idea of the world. Creating serendipity is what we'll be exploring in today's conversation. Welcome to the Knowledge Institute podcast, where we talk with thought leaders on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. I'm Jeff Cavanaugh, head of the Infosys Knowledge Institute, and today we're here with Christian Bush. Dr. Bush directs the Global Economy Program at New York University and teaches on purpose-driven business, entrepreneurship, social innovation, and cultivating serendipity at NYU and at the London School of Economics. Christian's consulted for multinational companies, is part of the World Economic Forum's Expert Forum, has guest lectured at Stanford Business School and also other leading universities, and his work's been published by leading outlets and received numerous awards. He holds a PhD of Master's Science and Management from the London School of Economics, Bachelor of Arts from Hagen University in Sociology, as well as studies at Ferwagan University and the Moscow Business School. Christian is the author of the upcoming book, The Serendipity Mindset. Christian, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. With that wide and varied background, let's just dive in. What inspired you to research the topic of serendipity and eventually write this book? You know, it's interesting because when I grew up in Heidelberg, which is a romantic city uh, in Germany, I was this kind of rebellious teenager who was living in the day. And then when I uh, turned 18, I got a car, started driving the car as recklessly as I live my lifestyle. And then at some point I had a car crash that, that almost killed me. And that kind of made me think about a lot of the kind of things in life that I might have not experienced had I had fate played out differently. And so it put me on this intense search for meaning in terms of trying to figure out what is life about? What can we learn about life? And what do I enjoy? And I realized what I really enjoy is connecting people, connecting ideas. And so I started going on a journey of first setting up a couple of communities and organizations that were around bringing together young people and help them make their ideas happen. But then over time, kind of my reflective side took over and, and I went a bit more into academia, working on questions such as how do we scale social impact? How do we understand the success of businesses? How do we understand why some individuals are more successful than others? And what I found fascinating over the last 15 years, what popped up everywhere in my private life, in my personal life, uh, in my professional life was that a lot of the people seem to somehow be more serendipitous than others by having a couple of type of practices that they used intuitively. Implicitly, they were not really aware of it, but somehow they did it. And so I've just been extremely curious about what was it that they did that was different from those people who might live a life where they feel, oh, luck is what happens to other people. And so I started studying that a bit more and, and really trying to understand what are the patterns behind that? It seems like 
the topic could be a little bit warm and fuzzy, especially several years ago. Which branch of academia did you choose for this and why? That's a great question because when I started out, essentially, I started out with a very practical interest in serendipity as a community builder, as a company builder. It was something we did intuitively. We tried to build that into values-based practices in our communities and so on. But it wasn't something that somehow seemed to be an academic project that could be done. But then when I started doing research around scaling social impact and research around success and failure of companies, it popped up everywhere. And so it allowed me to relate it to what makes some companies more successful than others. And so essentially by bringing it into, for example, different research around the question of how can companies plan versus what emerges unexpectedly? Uh, you know, there's a big debate in kind of management research around how much of strategy is kind of bottom up and emergent and how much of this is kind of top down. And so the kind of management research actually was fitting really well because that is a question. How do you cope with uncertainty? How do you cope with something that you cannot plan out? And so that whole idea of cultivating serendipity, um, we've published a couple of things around this now, and I think it's kind of getting more and more embedded in that literature, but also more broadly in the natural sciences. You see in chemistry, for example, you see experiments that have shown that you can accelerate serendipity. So you see pockets in different literatures that have been working on it. But I think what that book tries to do is to say, hey, let's bring this all together and let's show that there is a science-based framework for how we can cultivate serendipity that we can anchor in those different disciplines. If we put a business hat on, because that's a lot of what we cover, how we can apply these to uh, business topics, what is it about serendipity in your research findings that an executive can apply? Or at least how does it relate to the uncertainties and opportunities in a business environment? It's interesting because so we recently actually did a report where we interviewed 31 of the top CEOs in the world. So we did one to two hour interviews with them. Um, you know, the kind of CEOs of companies like MasterCard and others. We were deep diving into questions such as, what is it that makes them really a bit more successful than others? And what was fascinating is how many of them intuitively within their companies created practices that allowed them to have more serendipity happen. So for example, in one company, what they have is something called a project funerals, where say you have something like a technology. The idea was, hey, here's a window frame and it doesn't reflect the light and great, let's sell this. And they realized, okay, there's, there's no market for this. And so what usually you would do in a company is you would say, okay, this project didn't work out. Let's put it away, right? Let's hide it that it didn't work. That's it. What this company did was to say, no, like we want to bring out, we want to learn from those kind of things and we want to see what we can do with this. So what they developed is essentially saying whenever something doesn't work out, the project manager goes in front of other project managers, talks about why they think it didn't work. It's not about celebrating failure. It's about celebrating what we can learn from that. And then essentially that project manager would be talking about, hey, look, we underestimated there's no market for this. Then a person in the audience would be like, hey, but have you considered what this means for solar? Have you considered if you have this amazing technology that absorbs all this light, what we could do with this in the solar area? And that's how most of their solar division emerged, right? And that is extremely serendipitous, right? That was very unexpected. It was a positive coincidence that that person was in the audience. But actually by cultivating a culture and practices that allowed for people to in a way, share and put something out there. It also allows people to connect the dots across these different areas. It, A, kind of makes them more innovative. And we saw that across a lot of different companies, right? That essentially those kind of practices allow for innovation. They allow for people 
developing more trust with each other. But also you'll see how these CEOs are really good at saying, on one hand, we want to develop a certain idea of where we're going, like a, a sense of direction. But also we are very aware that the unexpected happens all the time. So we want to empower our employees to say, when we see something unexpected, let's say there's a marketing plan and we planned this all out, but then we see there's customers who react differently. Like in the example I mentioned about the potato washing machine at hire, like when you have something like this where you unexpectedly encounter information that is the opposite of what you expect, a lot of times we still try to push through our plans, right? Because we assume we, we know what this is about. But the idea of those CEOs and more broadly of, of successful leaders that I've been working with is to say, you know what, we built that in that we want to turn this unexpected into something and we're placing bets on this. And so uh, you see companies, for example, developing structures where they have investment committees that directly invest into unexpected ideas. Or you have practices where people directly have a sounding board where they can test those ideas with and so on. So there's a lot of these kind of practices that you can build in that allow you to be more innovative and to eventually have more impact. Do you think you're uncovering something people already do? Or is this a, a new thing that more can adopt and it's, it's possibly something that can raise business performance? You know, it's interesting because first and foremost, it's a mindset, right? Once you start believing that you can create your own luck, you start creating your own luck. Let me give you an example. There's an amazing uh, psychologist in the UK called Richard Weissman, um, who did a couple of experiments. And one of the experiments was around saying, let's essentially say we take someone who self-identifies as extremely lucky. So someone who says luck happens to me all the time. And you have someone who self-identifies as extremely unlucky. And so essentially what they told them is, look, what I want you to do is, walk down the street, sit in a coffee shop, order a coffee, that's it. What they didn't tell them is that there would be hidden cameras across the street and in the coffee shop, there would be a five pound note in front of the door placed in front of the entrance. And there would only be four tables in the coffee shop, three of which would have actors. And then the fourth one, like this super successful businessman who can make the biggest ideas happen. And so essentially, you know, the, the lucky person walks down the street, sees the five pound note, picks it up, goes into the coffee shop, orders the coffee, has a nice conversation with the barista, sits next down to the businessman because the businessman sits on the table uh, closest to the counter, has a conversation with them, that's it. The unlucky person walks down the street, steps over the five pound note, goes into the shop, orders the coffee, also sits next to the businessman, that's the table that's closest, the other person's gone by then, ignores the businessman and that's it. Now, at the end of the day, they ask both, like, how was your day? How did it go? And, you know, the lucky person says, well, it was an amazing day. I found money in the street. I made two new friends. And, you know, we don't know if there's an opportunity that came out of it, but might well be, right? That a lot of times opportunities come out of these conversations. They ask the unlucky person, how was your day? Well, nothing really happened. And I've seen that a lot also in the corporate context that you will see that some people will have those kind of things happen all the time because they alert to it. So first and foremost, it's about getting people alert and open-minded to it. But also then again, there's a couple of things we can do in the day-to-day, -day, you know, simple things like uh, setting hooks, for example, right? That a lot of us, when you go into, let's say, a new setting, conference setting or something else, we tend to ask the same questions, right? We tend to ask questions like, what do you do, X, Y, Z? And we tend to always give the same answers, right? We have a certain autopilot. So we say, oh yeah, you know, I'm working at Infosys and running X, Y, Z. I mean, I'm sure you have a greater answer and, and you have something that it's much more entertaining, but that's what we generally do, right? We have a certain autopilot that we get into. But once we are alert of, or once we are aware of the power of serendipity, what we do is to say, okay, you know what? Serendipity is all about connecting the dots. Serendipity is all about seeing something in the other person or in the situation that it could somehow connect something with. And so essentially then, if you ask me, what do you do? I would say something like, 
well, you know, I'm currently really interested in serendipity, but I've also been working on exploring philosophical tension of this, and I've also just finished this book. And so I try to build an answer that is as long as your answer, but that gives three or four hooks. So there's these simple practices that I'm very excited about that we can do that open us up to those kind of things that seem like a coincidence, but again, you can train yourself for it once you start seeing it. But then also, again, you can build a corporate culture that allows you to have that all the time. Everything from how you structure meetings and ask people for what they found most surprising last week. You know, there's a lot of different tactics you can use, but the point is we can build that into everything, every system and our mind in itself. But in a way, it's essentially not a clear-cut answer to what you ask, but I think it's a mixture between, yes, it's something a lot of people do intuitively, and now it's about saying, what can we learn from them so that we can transfer this to everyone? But also, if I'm already doing it intuitively, what else can I do to make even more of this happen? Once again, you're listening to the Knowledge Institute, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. We are here with Dr. Christian Bush, NYU professor and author of the upcoming book, The Serendipity Mindset. Christian, you mentioned this idea of a mindset and hooks and things you can set. It sounds similar in some respects to maybe approaching with a different mindset than the average person who lets things happen to them. What about this stoic mindset that you hear a lot, especially at Silicon Valley, but also other folks? And I I know Ryan Holiday, who's done a fair amount of writing on it. And how would you compare serendipity with taking a stoic approach? When you say stoic approach, which aspect? The suffering Uh, aspect or the... (laughs) Not the suffering so much, but just seeing things as they are, uh, making the best of it, having a fairly positive mindset about it and not, you know, basically getting negative about it. It's interesting because, you know, if you think about things such as a growth mindset as well, right? Like something where you Mm -hmm. say, yes, we're looking at the world and we essentially try to make the best out of, you know, what comes our way. We assume everything is somehow malleable and so on. I think what the interesting thing here is to say, yes, that is true. And that is part of it. But actually the kind of underlying philosophy here is to say, you know what? We assume that we can plan things out right? We assume that there's a certain degree of control we have in our life. And then, you know, we run with it. The beauty of like when you develop a serendipity mindset is to say, you know what, let's get away from the illusion of control. Let's get away from the illusion that we can map everything out. Let's get to the point where we can say, all right, as a company or as an individual, I can set a certain North Star. I can set a certain idea of where approximately I want to go. If I'm a MasterCard or so, I'm saying, you know what, I want to lift 400 million people into the financial system, and I want to do this within the next five years, but I might not know yet how to do it. And so now I have an open mind to what happens. And if I'm Ajay, the CEO of of MasterCard, I might run into someone in South Africa who tells me about something, and I'm like, oh my God, such a coincidence. You know what, I will relate this to this bigger plan here that we have, but I'm, I'm really open to it. The core point here is that I feel the core notion that I'm really excited about and that you will see a lot in management and a lot of the the organizations I work with, I think is this idea that we think strong leadership is about knowing a lot of things. It's about planning a lot of things. It's about having the best strategy, all these kind of things. But actually at the end of the day, it's a lot about building that muzzle for the unexpected to happen and not seeing it as a loss of control, but actually seeing it as a way to really turn the best ideas into something. And so I think it's, it's about kind of mostly the mindset also saying, at the end of the day, let's redefine what we mean with strong leadership. A lot of the the CEOs, for example, in that report, but also more broadly in our research of the last decade, 
a lot of them are quote unquote practical philosophers themselves, right? They ask why all the time, they question everything. But again, they also have a very strong sense of direction and a very strong sense of where they want to go. And so I think that interplay I find really fascinating. So yes, there are elements of growth mindsets in there, but it's, it's a much broader theme around saying, this is like a life philosophy that you can create your own luck and you can do it in a way that is not about losing control, but it's actually about gaining control. Let's put it to the test. As you and I speak, we're not doing this in person in New York City as we had planned. How could serendipity possibly help us in a time of pandemic? It's a great question, you know, especially in a time where you're confined to your home and you're, you know, there's a lot of the incidences like running into someone in the coffee shop might not be as available as they usually are. What I think is really interesting about the pandemic at the moment is that in a way, it's an opportunity to show what you're really about. In a way, crisis is a way of showing or bringing out either the worst or the best in ourselves, right? And you will see at the moment a lot of companies that will do things that they might regret in a couple of years. And you will see other companies that will gain a lot of legitimacy over the next years because they react to the unexpected in a way that is seen as responsible, that is seen as something that turned it into innovation. If you think about past crises, take something like Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, where Best Buy said, look, our values are around family and, and related themes where we want to take care of the people we work with. So the first thing they said was when this unexpected event happened, all right, we will send private planes to help our employees to get out of this. We will work with the local communities to help them out and so on. So they leveraged the unexpected. They turned it into like something positive. You know, the productivity afterwards went up through the roof, right, of the employees because they were loyal, they were grateful, um, that when it mattered the most, in the unexpected moment where a lot of other companies just shut down, they essentially showed their true colors to their employees and proved their values to them in a way that led in the end to a lot of different types of positive outcomes. I think we see something very similar at the moment where you see companies reacting very differently to the unexpected. Some of them turn into positive outcomes, similar to, you know, there's a car company, for example, what they did was to say, look, we cannot employ all these people at the moment, but we will continue paying them. And then we will count that as overtime whenever we get out of this. And so we find these kind of innovative solutions that in a way, a lot of times now employees feel empowered. They come up with genuine ideas and they had a couple of really interesting ideas now that they developed at home and brought it to the company because they care, right? Because now essentially people say, I really find that that is a company that made sense to me. You also see like small scale innovations, right? You see whole industries that redefine themselves. You see how breweries become hand sanitizing companies, how you know, virtual conferences emerge, all these different types of things. Again, in crisis, usually the most interesting serendipitous, innovative ideas and solutions are emerging. And it's always interesting then, of course, to see how sustainable they are. But usually these kind of moments are a great opportunity for leadership. In German, we have this saying, is, is there an American saying for this? Like you cut the, the good ones from the bad ones, right? You, you see who's really- Wait from really, the chaff. Wait yes. from the chaff. Exactly. Exactly that it is. Yes. Can you link serendipity and innovation? innovation process, if you want to call it that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the interesting thing is that there's studies that like up to 50 to 70% of, of a lot of innovation is actually serendipitous, right? So it, of course, depends on what we understand as innovation. But if we, we understand innovation as kind of like some kind of improvement that somehow happened and helps us to do something better afterwards, think about everything from Sildenafield, for example, where, you know, it was a kind of product innovation where you would have researchers who were trying to figure out a, a way to cure angina and to, to do that by injecting people. And they saw there was a certain movement in, in men's trousers. And, you know, 
what would most people do? They would try to either ignore it or they would say, okay, I see it, but I want to find a better way now to cure angina. So I want to ignore what's, what's happening there. Um, what they did was the opposite. They said, you know what? We link this unexpected encounter of seeing something in men's trousers happening to the idea that a lot of people might have that problem in the world that, you know, there's not much happening in, the, in that department. And that is how Viagra came about, right? That is how product innovation came about unexpectedly, but they were able to see something unexpected, connect the dots, and then do something like this. You see a lot of this also when you think about things such as, you know, I mentioned earlier the example of the solar division that came unexpectedly out of something that is kind of a completely new way of where that company is headed. Um, you will see at companies like IKEA, they have a lot of kind of unexpected areas that they've been exploring now because their CEOs or other people were open to the unexpected. Think about companies like, like Philips, for example, right? Companies like Philips are interesting because they were traditionally structured based on the solution they provide, right? So let's say they, they provide tomography. And so then they have a department that focuses on tomography. The problem here, of course, is that if you put me into the box of tomography, I will only innovate within the space of, let's do a better solution within tomography. So like a better apparatus that helps us to do tomography. Now, if I step back and say, let's open the space of what we can do here and think about what is the problem? The problem is around precision diagnosis, right? We want to find a better way of diagnosing if someone has a problem. So now if I rename that department, and that is the process that a couple of those kind of companies at the moment, if I try to rename and restructure those departments into those problem areas that are now around things like precision diagnostics and so-and-so, and again, that is a very political process and it takes a long time. But once they do it, then of course now when I'm an employee, I think very differently about how can I come up with better ideas because I'm not constrained to things like tomography. Now I'm thinking about maybe it could be a completely different way to do that. And that's, I think, in general, how companies like Hire and others accelerate their innovation processes by saying, we don't define ourselves by having a particular product or something, but we're saying, if we see something unexpected in the data, if we see, again, the, the example that people wash the potatoes in the washing machine, then we have to react to this. And maybe, you know what, maybe we, we don't even need to be a washing machine producer. Maybe we move into data XYZ at some point. And so I think the more the world is changing very fast, the more we are reliant on unexpected information to also understand what is the next area we can move into, which by definition is, is about innovation. I'd like to follow up on, on something said earlier. You said that you mentioned the phrase connect the dots a few times. We always use that. You know, it's, it's a frequent phrase. What's behind that phrase? And is it an opportunity to go into what's supporting it with analysis, with systems thinking? There's probably some broader implications of that as well. Yeah, it's interesting because when you look at a fast-changing world, which has a lot of kind of complex problems out there, right? And a lot of kind of issues that are so multi-layered that we cannot just solve them from one perspective or based on one kind of idea. It obviously depends on connecting different types of ideas, connecting different types of people and being able to make sense out of it. And so what I love about the idea of connecting the dots, I mean, with the Viagra example, a lot of times it's mostly about saying, if I observe something, how do I make sense out of that observation in relation to something else? And a lot of times that is about being able to do that in teams or being able to do that around kind of areas where we might have expertise in one, but then we need someone else for that. And so I think the, the exciting thing here from a company perspective is how do we enable people to connect the dots? How do we enable people to both be in teams that you know, allow for those kind of things to happen, but also how do we, for example, set up physical spaces for it. I always loved that kind of old Pixar example, that kind of time when 
uh, they needed a new headquarters and the architects first said, well, let's build like different buildings, one for the software developers, one for the management, one for the kind of creatives. And Jobs would say, look, this is a terrible idea because, you know, you separate the people who should connect the dots with each other, but actually you're putting them away from each other. So he said, let's build one building. Let's put the atrium in the middle. Let's put the physical mailboxes in the middle so that these people have to run into each other all the time physically. And they will see that they're not so different from each other. And they will start connecting the dots into other areas as well. And so I'm actually quite curious about exactly that idea of how do we incentivize people in very kind of nudge type ways, so in very subtle ways to learn how to connect the dots because our education system, for example, is not set up for connecting the dots. Our education system is set up for having one dot that we fixate. I don't want to overuse the analogy, but to overgrow that dot, right? And to really say, okay, I'm really getting good at this. I'm building expertise in this. But then essentially what's so important, obviously, with all these problems out there is to be able to link that to something else. And so that is where I think all these kind of systemic questions also come in in terms of Again, I think it all comes back to the mindset in terms of being able to do that, but then also from a company perspective, how do I build teams around this? How do I build rituals around this that allow people to do that? Put you on the spot here. You spent first part of your life in Europe, also studied in London, and you spent a lot of time now in New York. What's the difference in approach to serendipity, if there is one, between Europe and the US? Yeah, so that's an interesting question because, so when I think about, especially when I started getting deeper into serendipity and doing it outside the circles that I'm used to, right? Because in the circles I'm in, in the kind of innovation space, in the incubator space, in the space of entrepreneurs, it's very intuitive that people connect the dots, right? It's very intuitive that people have a, like they feel serendipity happens all the time. But then, you know, when I lived in London, I realized that there is a huge part actually of people who might say, yeah, but you know, maybe we don't even need that because our life is actually fine or, Maybe, can you really do this? Isn't this something that you can't control and so on? And so I feel in the British environment, it was fascinating because I felt there was a large part of the population that was a little bit hesitant, but also then those people who seemed to be most resistant. So for example, one of my dear colleagues at the LSE, the first thing he, he said at the beginning was, look, Christian, I really like those ideas, but you know what? Like, I'm happy in my life. Why would I need this? And so then we kind of worked through some of the exercises. And then two weeks later, he came back and he's like, Christian, I didn't know that life can feel so joyful and I didn't know that life can exist like this. And so my point there was that I think in that context, I feel that it took me a bit longer maybe to kind of iterate with the idea with some people, but actually then also those were the people who had the strongest buy-in once it really changed their life because it was new, because it was something that might not be the kind of accepted idea of how life works. Versus I think in New York, for example, I think a lot of people operate based on serendipity. It's always about getting out there and creating your own luck. And that's, you know, very related to the American dream and, and related themes and so on. So I find that fascinating in terms of how, in a way, I think the idea of creating your own luck is probably very different in different contexts, but also that I initially assumed that it's more important to get those people excited who believe in serendipity. But I realized more and more that it's actually much more impactful to turn someone who might not believe in serendipity yet into having serendipity because it brings out so much meaning and joy that really transformed their life then. What are three things that someone can do professionally, maybe even personally, to bring serendipity into their lives and maybe have a little more joy? That's a great question because I feel at the end of the day, some of the ones that I find most exciting is A, the question of first starting with what are our biases that we have and that we want to overcome? A, maybe we might underestimate the unexpected and we might kind of 
want to get into the idea that the unexpected happens all the time. Related to what I mentioned earlier, once we start seeing things and, and are alert to things, we have more of it. But also then, how do we remove barriers such as constant meetings or routines that might restrict us? Um, so for example, if you have control over your time, why are there ways to you know, merge meetings? I mean, one of the things, for example, that a colleague of mine does really well is he has 10, 15 people a day who want to meet him for a quick coffee. And he usually you know, meets everyone at once in a bar or in a coffee shop and says, great, like, let's quickly discuss about this. And actually by doing this, he has all these people also who don't know each other who then make all these meaningful connections with each other as well. So that's kind of a way to like remove barriers, but also allow for kind of serendipity for others to emerge. Another one that I've found extremely interesting for myself also is to really kind of separating what Adam Grant talks a lot about, the kind of manager from the maker schedule in terms of really thinking about when is the time where I want to go deep and really think about deeper ideas and really allow myself to do that? In my case, for example, in the mornings, and when is it about meetings, going out there and putting stuff in? Because the interesting thing about serendipity is that a lot of times it needs an incubation time. It needs reflection. We might uh, see something, but we might need some time to really kind of drive that idea home and to make sense out of it. Another practice that I really like is setting serendipity bombs, you know, especially at the moment where people are home, you know, a lot of people have more time than usual especially when they're kind of uh, high leverage people. And so, you know, why not send three emails to the people that you admire the most, that inspire you the most, and where you can, you know, on the internet with all these platforms, you can find their email addresses or via LinkedIn or whatever, and sending them an email and just say, hey, look, like I've been inspired by your work. I find it really interesting. I've been working on this. Would love to kind of catch up at some point, whatever it is. And like, if you do that with like three to 10 people, there's always a couple of people who say, oh my God, like, hey, this is great timing because I just looked into this. I just wanted to start this. Yale, yale, yale. So I think this kind of idea of setting serendipity bombs, which again is very similar also to the idea of setting hooks and really kind of going out there and really in a way putting more potential dots out there that can be connected is definitely something that, that can help. Of all these tactics and there's a lot of exercises you can do in terms of how you can frame your mind and reframe your mind, that kind of ability to believe that you can create your own luck and then kind of train yourself into it by asking questions differently, you know, away from what do you do to what's your state of mind or what are you most interested in at the moment, whatever it is, but just something that, that kind of allows you to open up the, the opportunity space. I think that's, that's what I enjoy most. How can people find you online? There is a homepage, which is serendipitymindset.com. And then on LinkedIn, it's Christian Bush. And on Twitter, it's at Chris Serendip. And everyone, you can find details on our show notes and transcripts at emphasis.com slash IKI in our podcast section. Christian, thank you for your time and a highly interesting and serendipitous discussion. You've been listening to the Knowledge Institute, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. Thanks to our producer, Catherine Burdett, Dode Bigley, and the entire Knowledge Institute team. Until next time, keep learning and keep sharing.